this is Kim Nicolaitis with Advent Christian Voices. This is uh, March 19th, I believe it is. We just had the uh, St. Patrick's Day weekend, and uh, now uh, we're starting a new week. And I'm going to be finishing up for you today what we started. I sort of really jumped in the middle of an exposition I was doing <clears throat> on the uh, Epistle to the Ephesians. So today will be my last broadcast on that particular subject. And today I'd like to discuss the final component of the spiritual warrior's arsenal and possibly the most important uh, from the standpoint of developing a relationship with God being formed into the man or woman God wants us to be and being used of God to move forward his kingdom here on earth. And that is the component of prayer, our spiritual weapon, which we can stand in the gap for those who are as of yet, uh, perhaps unaware of their desperately urgent spiritual needs. Uh, when I say stand in the gap, I'm referring to that is a gap in a wall that may have been breached, say, and the defenses, which are at that point certainly not sufficient to withstand assaults from an enemy. So anyone who's not walking with the Lord perhaps might, you might think would represent such an easy target in that sense, who doesn't have any defensive barriers erected to protect them from his destructive Design. So when we pray for them, we are, in a sense, putting ourselves in that gap in the wall, in a sense, uh, to keep them from being so easily duped, deceived, uh, and maligned by the enemy until such time as they can respond to the light God gives to each of us and take cover behind the defensive barriers we all have against such tactics. We who have access to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and understand the need we have also to put our faith in him. It also means uh, asking our Father in heaven for the resources necessary to do his will whenever possible by equipping and serving his church. And finally, prayer can simply be a way of expressing God our joy, contentment, and gratitude for his many mercies and answers to the prayers we've already made. I just want to read here uh, that portion of scripture before I dive into this. The whole armor of God, Ephesians 6, 10, finally, by the peace of the Lord and in the strength of his might, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the rulers, uh, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of the salvation. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador and change. That I may declare boldly as I want to speak. Amen. Well, prayer being the final component of this 
arsenal of the six or seven, actually it would be, I guess, the seventh component if you would include it as such, is the lifeline of the Christian. It's the air he breathes. It's his fellowship with the Prayer is simply expressing his thoughts and concerns to God as well as his thanks for all of the wonderful mercies that he continually experiences and are poured out upon him day after day, hour after hour, moment after moment for the joy that we have in Christ. If that joy is real, we can want to express our thanks to God for it. Now, there are many formulas uh, that can be helpful as to us as we contemplate what or how it is we ought to obey this final imperative of Paul and his description of the spiritual warrior's armor. And of course, we recognize that this weapon we have in prayer is certainly one that is and can be both offensive and defensive in nature. It's been said that Satan never trembles more so than when he sees the humblest or even the weakest Christian on his knees, his or her knees before God. The questions, however, that I'd like to ask for today's text and which I believe this text answers to some degree are why should I pray and when should I pray and, and how should I pray? The first question I want to look at, why why should I pray? You know, must be considered in light of the fact that the Bible teaches us that God already knows not only all of our concerns and needs, but the outcome even of all that we will ever do. There's nothing we can ever hope to be able to tell God that he doesn't already no, if we believe the Bible and believe in the God of the Bible, it's kind of hard not to come to that conclusion. First Samuel 2, 3 tells us plainly that he is the God of knowledge. Job asks, asks the rhetorical question, can anyone teach God knowledge? Only because the answer is plain as the nose on your face. Absolutely not. As he later declares, the Lord is perfect in knowledge. Or as Proverbs tells us, he is the beginning of knowledge. I like the way God responds to the complaints of Job when he asked him a series of questions regarding his knowledge. The first of which is, who darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? So in view of what the Bible declares to us about God's omniscience and omnipotence, which means that he not only knows everything we could ever tell him, but he's already going to do whatever he has already decided that he wants to do anyways, then why should we pray? What's the purpose of our prayers to God if not to make him aware of desires and needs? What possible benefits could we ever hope to achieve in the process? Well, the answer to that question is simply that, first of all, we pray because in this text we are commanded to pray, <laughs> not just in the scriptures, but throughout the scriptures we are given such coaxing and encouragement and examples of the benefits to be gained from prayer, as well as the commands to bring our requests before God. Jesus said to ask, to seek, and to knock. So we cannot be obedient to the word of God unless we are willing to commit ourselves to a life of prayer and to become more and more committed to praying as long as we live. The second reason that I would like to mention here is that whenever we are uh, praying to God with a believing heart, believing that God hears those prayers, then we will be experiencing 
God's peace in our hearts to a much greater degree than we could ever have experienced. Otherwise, that is just a fact of life. You know, I was watching a a program. I used to enjoy watching this program by uh, Dr. Oz. And I mentioned him because as far as I know, he's not even a Christian. But he was explaining what were the three greatest factors that have an impact on the state of one's, the health of one's heart. In this program, he was outlining the history of the development of medical science on the treatment of one of the greatest killers of mankind, coronary heart disease. He showed how science had developed all these procedures for performing coronary bypass surgery and intricate operations involving the placement of what they call stents or little devices that they insert surgically into an artery that has been clogged and inflate. Then they inflate it in order to open up the artery so that blood would be able to pass freely and thereby reach those parts of the body, particularly heart muscles, which need to be continually supplied and bathed in oxygen and other nutrients that the blood supplies. The Bible declares that uh, life is in the blood, and whenever there's a succession of the blood supplied to any part of the body, that part of the body dies. The problem was that despite all these procedures and operations that enabled people with coronary heart disease to keep on living despite having had multiple heart attacks, such procedures could never stop the continued inevitable progress which the disease had upon the arteries and consequently upon the body as well. Nor could they reverse much of the extent of the damage that had already occurred as a result of the disease and as a result of the continual buildup of plaque on the interior walls of their arteries. The solution to that problem, however, was relatively simple. It only required three simple steps that people had to take actually to reverse, even reverse the whole process of plaque buildup in their arteries. The first step was to change their diet so they could no longer be consuming the fatty substances substances that led to the buildup of uh, plaque in the first place. And the next step was to, you know, have an exercise agenda that included perhaps a half an hour or so of aerobic exercises every day. But those two steps, however, were they were rarely sufficient by themselves to actually reverse the process of the disease because there was another factor that would inevitably have detrimental effects upon the flexibility and the ability of the arteries to actually be restored and renewed and depleted of any plaque residue that had already been deposited on their walls. The factor was stress or high blood pressure. And the only way in which that could be reduced sufficiently was if people would simply be willing to spend an hour in prayer each day or meditation or something of that nature. When the primary focus of their thoughts was away from themselves, when people were willing to do this actual measurable effects in terms of the health of their heart and arteries were so remarkable that uh, they were actually able to document substantial reductions in the quantities of plaque found built up on the interior walls of arteries previously clogged. So in effect, the results were so stunning that they could actually reverse uh, the already developed problem of arterial wall plaque deposits and in effect cure a person with arterial heart disease. 
And this is, by the way, something that God promises in his word. He commands us not to be anxious in anything, but that we should rather, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make all of our requests known to God. And the promise is that when we're willing to do that, God's peace, which transcends knowledge, will guard our and keep our hearts in good condition. It's not that there's any inconsistency in God's word here in that we are ever actually making anything known to God, anything that he doesn't already know, but that we are simply telling him that which we know. So the first reason to pray is obedience. The second reason to pray is simply to enjoy that peace which with God, which is, by the way, what Christ died to afford Uh, So it's something that we need to do in order to be effective in our ministry, as well as to be able to enjoy all, any of all the other wonderful gifts and mercies that God has for us. The third reason I believe we should pray is that we will come to a better understanding of who God is in his absolutely perfect holiness and purity and grow in our faith towards him and in his faithfulness to us, and all of his creatures. When we pray, one inevitable outcome that we gain is a greater appreciation of God and ourselves. Jesus said that when we ask, we shall receive, assuming that we ask in faith. So if we don't receive what it is we're anticipating, maybe it's because we're not exercising the appropriate level of faith in God. I don't mean by that That's because our faith is too small, because Jesus said that even if your faith is as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and it will obey you. So it's not a matter of how much you are relying on your faith. However, I think it has more to do with who it is that you are putting your faith in and how, correct, that image that you've erected in your mind of who Jesus really is, is. And we all have much to learn in that regard. We all need to frequently have our misperceptions corrected and to grow in our faith. And by that, I mean grow in our knowledge of who God truly is in terms of his absolute holiness and purity, ethically and morally. So when I think about this reason for praying, it reminds me of the case of the Pharisees and the publicans who both went up into the temple to pray. The Pharisee thanked God that had made him such a good and upstanding person who always prayed and fasted and paid his tithes and didn't indulge in any of the disreputable activities, as would surely have been the case with the publican who happened to be there with him at the time. The publican or tax collector, on the other hand, felt so guilty that he could not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but simply beat his breast and ask God to have mercy on him. See, when you come into a true awareness God's presence with you, then it humbles you no matter how much you may have ever accomplished in your life. You realize that you're but dust and ashes, and everything or anything you've ever done or accomplished is nothing more than that in comparison to the infinite majesty of his glory and grace. Jesus said of those two who were praying together in the temple, only the publican left justified before God, and that was because only he had a more correct perception of who it was to whom he was addressing his prayers. In other words, our posture changes whenever we realize before whom it is that we are addressing addressing our prayers.
And whether we are physically on our knees or not, which, by the way, is never an inappropriate stance to take, we certainly should be aware to an increasing extent, hopefully, of the degree of God's mercies and his patience towards us. So, when we pray to God, we don't always see the answers we anticipate. Maybe we should ask ourselves the question, did I actually address my prayers, the God who truly is? Or was I actually addressing them to a God more of my own design, some fictitious God that I had created in my imagination? We're all to some extent guilty of offering such prayers, and I think the only way in which we can ever overcome such inclinations is by continually examining the motivations of our hearts that lie behind the prayers we offer. We should always ask ourselves, why am I praying this prayer? Is it because of some selfish need? And I don't trust God's willing to otherwise meet it. Jesus said we should never worry about the material or physical needs that we have because God is more than happy to supply those things. But that doesn't mean we don't ask for them. We ask for them with gratitude so that we may be able simply to bring God glory in acknowledging his graciousness and in enjoying him forever. So is that the reason we do what we do? I guess we should ask not simply why we pray as we do, but why we do anything, whatever it is we do or think as well. So while we do pray to God in order to obey, We do not pray to God so that by our obedience, we can in some way put him in debt to us, and nor do we pray in order to earn merit. And that's one reason why I don't pray for something that the Bible tells me my prayers will have no effect upon, because the outcome of those events have already been determined on how God will respond to those situations. In other words, I don't pray to God to have mercy upon the dead, because I know that such prayers would be to ask God to change something which he can't change, that is his word, nor that he does not have mercy on the dead already, but that the extent of that mercy will in no way be affected by my prayers for them subsequent to their death. death. Their rewards have already been established. That's not to say that we cannot pray that the works of those who are dead cannot follow them in the sense that whatever they may have done in life could not continue to be used for God's glory because God does tell us that the works of the righteous will follow them even after their death. It's just that it seems pointless to me to ask God to bless somebody who's already dead or even ask that they may rest in peace simply because at that point their rewards have already been determined and our prayers will not change that. So to pray in that regard is to insult God by not believing what he tells us plainly in his word. Now this is a paradox because part of the reason God commands us to pray is so that we will develop our faith in God's willingness to respond to such prayers when we pray according to his will. In other words, God expects us to believe that our prayers can and will change things, and I believe they will, despite the fact that God is sovereign over everything anyways. They change things because when we do pray, we are changed for one, and the way we are changed is that we become more conformed to his light. And when we become more conformed to his likeness, then our motivations are more in line with his will, and our prayers will consequently become more and more in line with that which is God's intention already to answer. And when we see those answers, 
then our faith will grow. And that growth of our faith will become potentially exponentially accelerated, assuming we don't fall into certain traps that we bog us down so that our prayers uh, will not have the appropriate effect. Well, that brings me to my last question I want to answer about prayer today, which is this text addresses as well, I think, how should I pray? And it says, pray in the spirit without ceasing, actually. And what does that mean? Well, praying in the spirit means praying in God's will because the spirit of, is God. <laughs> but Paul wouldn't tell us to do that unless we had it within our own abilities to do so. So I think one way to understand this is by what he says in other places about praying in the spirit. For instance, for instance in 1 Corinthians 14.8, he says that he will pray in the spirit and he will pray with the understanding. He will sing in the spirit and he will sing with the understanding. In that text, it's clear that when one prays in the spirit, it's done without the understanding. And from the context of the passage, it's also clear that uh, they're talking about praying with other tongues. Okay, therefore, it would seem that here that was also what the idea may be. And it would be very difficult to refute that position on biblical grounds, although I've seen it attempted extensively with really Herculean efforts to do so, but I've not been so far convinced. However, I know that the Bible does say, or at least imply, that not have all been given the gift of speaking in tongues, or at least not all speak in tongues, so we cannot make this imperative, unconditional, I suppose, since there are no inconsistencies in God's word, and some of the greatest saints that have inspired me have not left any indications they themselves have ever engaged in that practice. But certainly they must have nonetheless prayed in the spirit. And so for a number of other reasons as well, speaking in tongues is a controversial issue. One reason is it doesn't make any sense, you know, to speak in tongues when you can't understand what you're saying. And the Bible says that the spirit is always under the control of the believer. So it's an affront to our sensitivities to allow our mouths to utter syllables, which may seem like gibberish to us for all that we know. They may indeed be gibberish if they are not inspired by Holy Spirit. So how can we ever be sure it's the Holy Spirit that's inspiring such language from within us? Or is it just coming from our own desperate attempts to conform to some peer pressure around us? And that's a problem that requires some ex us to examine again our motivations. Is the reason we speak that way because of the passion we have to express our love and devotion to God simply beyond our own abilities to do so or express in words that we can grasp? But yet, we need to find a way to release that desire. I think of a little child sitting in her father's lap, you know, trying to express herself, but not yet able to verbally articulate it. And a lot of goo goo gaga come out. That doesn't mean her father doesn't appreciate those inarticulate utterings. Speaking in tongues can simply be seen as a way to release the passionate desire of our hearts to pour out a virtual stream of continual praise to our Heavenly Father, but for which any of the words we know cognitively just fall a little bit short. They fail. So sometimes we need some way to express the love in our hearts, and so speaking in tongues may alone may suffice. So I think of it as a prayer language when our minds are too tired to pray. So I have no hesitation in recommending the practice so long as it serves to strengthen 
Your humility, which I would think, by virtue of its nature, would offer some value in that regard. And again, we all need to grow in that respect. That is, in fact, perhaps one of our greatest needs. And we have whatever helps us, that is, I suppose, is well worth the effort. So praying in tongues is just one way to facilitate the effort to die to yourself, to put to death your carnal nature, and to override the thought process and allow God, perhaps, to have his way. The Bible tells us that one day tongues will cease. Some might claim that day has arrived, but those who do don't really understand that context either. The passage is talking about the day when we'll be seeing Christ face to face. At that time, we'll no longer have any need to speak in tongues because we'll be given new faculties as well, which will help in our abilities to express the adoration we have right now is the time. And until Christ returns is when it says in Romans that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope which is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for that which we do not see, we eagerly await for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray as we ought, or what we should pray for as we ought. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our intercession for us, and I like to say through us as well with groanings that cannot be uttered. So to pray in that manner, one simply has to believe that the Holy Spirit is resident within us, and he is willing to pray through us anytime, anywhere, that we will allow him to do so. Now, how can that be so hard to believe since we're commanded to pray in the Spirit all the time? then that includes any time or anywhere for us to be simply willing to yield our members to him. It must involve trust because it means that we're trusting that the Holy Spirit is also strong and enough and willing enough to protect us when we're in a, such a yielded state and also consequently a vulnerable state. We are his vessels in a sense, totally his, to be used by him as he sees fit. Speaking in tongues then is simply resting in that faith and not trying to second guess it by saying, no, that was just me and not the Holy Spirit. Because doing that fails to acknowledge, once again, God's absolute sovereignty and our absolute dependency upon him. And he must become greater and we must become less. Lastly, we need to pray with perseverance and not give up just because we may not see the results we expect when we expect or want them. And that concludes our discussion of the Ephesians. But let me put in perspective the practice of prayer as it stands in regards to the other mentioned in this passage. I think that can be done as we look at what Nehemiah was commanded, commended for doing when he was in the process of overseeing the construction of the walls around Jerusalem. When he was literally filling the gaps in those walls, he had been under threat of imminent attack by forces significantly greater than his own. And in chapter 4, verse 9, it says, we, we made our prayer to our God and Set a watch against them day and night. Basically, two things that were uh, essential for his success. In other words, all of the spiritual warriors' armaments that we may put on in our passage in Ephesians were equivalent to what Nehemiah is doing here by say, setting a watch day and night. But prayer is the one other ingredient. That at least in this passage is given just as much weight as all the other affirmation components. 
So maybe I should conclude our program today with a prayer. Okay, Father in heaven, we thank you for all the wonderful things, wonderful weapons of righteousness that you have provided with us so that we may prevail in the battles that we face in the world. Help us not to neglect or be negligent in fully exploiting whatever training opportunities you provide us in becoming more skillful in their use. And we pray that you would grant us the knowledge to skillfully use these weapons effectively as we apply that knowledge. And in that, in doing so, we would gain the proficiency we need to excel in our service to you and our usefulness to you in tearing down strongholds, setting captives free, bringing sight to the blind, and life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins through your grace. Help us. Never to be deceived, but to realize against whom our battle is being waged, who our true enemy is, and help us take up and put on with faith the whole armor of God so that we may be able to withstand in the evil day and quench all the fiery darts of the evil one with a shield of faith, girded about with the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate, breastplate of righteousness, our feet shot with the gospel of peace, our minds protected by the helmet, of the hope of salvation, and brandishing ever so skillfully the sword of the spirit that we may rightly divide the word of God whenever confronted with a need to decide the direction in which you want us to go. And help us, Lord, to pray always in the spirits with fervency and supplication for each other, for your kingdom's advancement and for your will to be done here on earth as in heaven with thanksgiving and in the name that is above every other name. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we do offer this prayer today. Amen. Well, that, 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 that uh, concludes uh, my uh, broadcast for today here at Advent Christian Voices. This is Kim Nicolaitis signing out. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. Let, us, let me know if you have any comments or questions. God bless you.